Hey everyone, happy midway point through summer to everyone. It's August 11th at the time of recording, and just as a public service announcement to anyone who doesn't know, summer colds suck, but hiding away from the wife and kid did give me an incredible opportunity to hole up in my office and get about 45 hours worth of gaming into Baldur's Gate 3 in about five days. It's not a full playthrough, uh, but I don't think I need to retcon this episode to tell you that uh, I welcome the challenge for anyone to beat Larian Studios at what it does best. That's right, not selling out, having one complete game in isometric, glorious RPG. This is going to be a one-shot recording, so I apologize if the quality slips in this episode, but I'm kind of racing against the clock with my voice going out. So if you hear a little more awkward breaks or cuts, that's just me being bad at editing with a splash of clearing my throat. But to delay no further, Baldur's Gate 3, ugh, where have you been? I have missed you so much. I'm going to talk about some things that might be spoiler E, contextually, but there's no Snape kills Dumbledore level of spoilers here. I'll leave the majority and the majesty of the story for your own playthrough, but you know, nag you 50 times over to go support Larian for being a dying breed of a game studio. So for those of you old enough to remember the sheer terror of hearing, hi friend, as you walk up to the Friendly Arm Inn, Larian gained the rights, and Wizards of the Coast gained the privilege of working with an isometric RPG studio that does its homework. It keeps the difficulty high, quick loads definitely a fingertip away, um, and I honestly hope that D&D fans are kind of enthralled, as I am with both the quality that the game brought over, uh, and from what had been done with uh, Divinity Original Sins 2. Plus or minus maybe a little bit of creative freedom with some of Baldur's Gate's guidelines. The cutscenes are sublime, the combat is both fair and frustrating, dialogue leaves nothing to the imagination, quite honestly, and the game runs extremely well on high-end machines. I feel like most people are going to be satisfied that they can get at least a 60 FPS, uh, regardless of the resolution that they run. For those of you handheld enthusiasts, uh, the ROG Ally performs surprisingly adequate, but it's actually the Steam Deck that kind of fell behind in my impressions. There were quite a few times where it fell below 30 FPS territory, uh, a figure that I hope can be fixed with just some slight optimizations, but I can say both of these without speculation because I ended up getting an Ally, but I'll talk about that later. It's going to sound like absolute fanboyism, but I will say it loud and proud, people did not outgrow isometric RPGs. It's soulless companies draining spectacular IPs of their innovation and releasing buggy turds too quickly that was the downfall. Look at Disco Elysium. That game literally just took the dialogue aspect of isometric RPGs and gave you essentially three fights, if you could call them that, which determines the end of the entire game. This Coalesium, by the way, it's on Humble Bundle this month, the final cut, uh, and it's absolutely worth the price if you haven't picked it up already. It kind of just sucks that there was such a fallout with the devs because the company 
it seems like it's going downhill with the, you know, profit hole that most companies end up going down when they have a successful game. It does kind of kill my hopes and expectations of seeing a true successor, like a Disco Elysium 2. Realistically, it's not in our future. But I mean, surprise, surprise, who do you think is a company with a record of advertising a fully formed game but releasing a wet shirt instead? Oh, you guessed it. EA. EA, you soulless gotcha factory of confusion. There are a lot of reasons I will never buy a game from EA again. But in this case, on this specific topic, it was for killing Dragon Age. After Dragon Age Origins was kind of just like, you know, a standard gem in terms of isometric RPG. Capitalizing on that success, they rushed out that piece of garbage that was Dragon Age 2 to the buggy disaster that it was, and of course they decided to wring that IP sponge dry with Dragon Age Inquisition. And I know I'm going to get probably a little bit of flack for this because to a lot of people Dragon Age Inquisition was okay, like it got high ratings, you know, and it even warranted a day one discounted buy from me off Green Man Games. But it was never the same game. Multiplayer was terrible after what we thought would be something like Mass Effect's multiplayer. It was so bad. But like the thing that most people were dragged towards was the actual single player story itself. And somehow they managed to put the most boring area right at the start of the game. I hated the forest. Not only did I hate the forest, I hated terrible AI partners, controls that never felt right, and a story I just couldn't get into. I feel like I'm the minority, but like the first time I played it, I didn't make it out of the forest. I quit. The second time around, I did make it out, but like I lost interest so quickly. But I mean, trust me, like I've considered going back, playing it now as it is as a complete game, making it part of my Steam Deck backlog, but EA having the attention span of like a 12-year-old teen constantly updating and changing its launchers, flip-flopping back and forth, kind of just makes me want to avoid it altogether with the amount of problems it creates for the Steam Deck. To be fair, I'd rather just keep playing The Witcher 3 for two to three hours a month at a time. Wow. Anyways, back from that salt factory. Uh, where to begin? Items seem like typical D&D or Divinity Original Sins kind of like flavor text. There's magical items, there's masterwork items, you know, everything is designated by color so that you don't have to put too much effort into seeing what is a really good item. Nothing is wasteful. I think there are unique situations for everything, so I've never really been disappointed with a necklace uh, that only lets you communicate with animals or the dead, you know, so on. The map is big, uh, and treasures and encounters can be found basically throughout the area, so nothing really outstays its welcome. I am in, still in chapter one, but I put a giant asterisk over this because uh, I did walk up to the mountain pass and saw the big, hey, if you go past this, things are going to change. So I decided to comb kind of every last inch of chapter one. And there's a lot of areas to uncover in chapter one. Like I'm 45 hours in and I, I have just kind of looked, I did kind of not spoiler it, but understand that there is some overlap in the zones between chapter one and chapter two and some zones that you absolutely have to work on in chapter one so maybe i'll have to do less than i actually thought afterward but even with that like i can see myself replaying this game for a couple reasons first i love the class depth uh even looking at all the, the classes across the board the recommended class stat role uh, is actually really well optimized which you couldn't really say about baldur's gate one and two 
And for that reason, it's kind of a change of pace, kind of like helping people ease in to Baldur's Gate and D&D. The action system isn't AP dots anymore. It's closer to kind of uh, Al Cat's Pathfinder games, back from when the D&D community showed it was willing to go scorched earth policy over some kind of, I guess, stupid politics and money-grabbing attitudes shown by the minds and management. But we got good aspects from both worlds here. Larian Studios kind of toned down the ground effects, uh, but kept, kept kind of the essence of zoning uh, and pathing and traps kind of well established, at least thus far anyways. I haven't seen any issues where you're in unlimited slip and slide territory yet. Uh, I mean, like, Grease is good, but it's not Destroyer of All on Two Feet kind of difficulty. I guess that could be also attributed to uh, the 5th edition Dungeon and Dragons things, but I don't know. They also made the swift improvement that uh, dots don't reapply and tick every time you move 3 centimeters through a fire. So taking 2 steps doesn't mean you're taking 7 different instances of 24 damage. There are some combinations that I haven't really tried yet, like electricity and water as an example to create an electrocuted floor, but it's also because I don't feel like I need to always employ these sheepish tactics. And it's nice that like you have things over and above. Kind of like, I don't even know if they were like meta, but like in Pathfinder we used to play with like hero points, you know, kind of. It is the innovation points of this game where you kind of get an opportunity to re-roll something when you go, oops, I failed a 10 check, uh, even with bonuses ranging from 8 to 11. But if we talk about classes, uh, in early access anyways, I tried Barb, I tried uh, Bard, Druid, uh, and Sork in early access, and all kind of like stand out on their own. Slight spoiler, maybe I'll say about this, uh, this time around in single player I ended up playing a Paladin, and my subclass was going to be an Oathbreaker. An Oathbreaker Paladin does as it sounds, it goes around doing what it feels fit and involves becoming a trained Paladin and then breaking that oath. Paladins always were a bit more of a unattractive class for both being like strong offense but also defensive centric. Because I mean, let's face it, an Oathbreaker is essentially a cleric that can mace in the face, but only to people who deserve it. If you're ever wondering what the distinction between a Paladin and an Oathbreaker is, it's like, well, do you feel the sudden urge to shove an innocent person off a cliff? Yeah, that's an Oathbreak. Do you feel like you want to free a prisoner who is clearly evil and wants nothing to do more than full land destruction? That is an Oathbreak. But do you know what isn't an Oathbreak? Letting your party do all the evil acts and you just heal bot and smash behind them. That'll keep your oath intact. I guess that's the one comment I could probably make. Uh, the one thing that you don't really see, or miss really, is you don't see people who are like, oh, I'm chaotic neutral, oh, I'm lawful neutral, and it's like, no, I'm chaotic good. Everyone kind of has like their own personalities, and you quickly understand what you do either agrees or disagrees with them. You know, sometimes you fall into good or bad, but it's also like, I don't know, we'll, let's just call it red versus blue. Sometimes it's not really right, sometimes it's not really wrong. I think it ties into people's beliefs more than anything. But yeah, there's no cardinal directions to go on this one. Moving on, uh, items. It's easy to vacuum and vendor in this game. Camp management uh, is a bit more of a pain in the ass. Uh, especially when you start doing things like try to sort things uh, into chests. 
or bags. Uh, you can make a bag, for example, too heavy to throw back into your inventory again, which might lead you to be like, hey, well, why don't I just throw it on the floor? It's kind of like true camps where you kind of, I guess it's not true camps. You go into your own little dimension where you have all the people that you meet along the way. But it's like, you can't put an assortment of chests around like your little tent. You have your one party box and basically that's it. At least in multiplayer, each player gets their own party box. But I don't know, for the fact that you can hit tab and you can kind of sort through and steal everybody's inventory whenever you feel like it, I don't see why that's really necessary. I will comment that uh, bags of holding uh, are kind of just exasperated flavor remarks that people say in passing. So I don't think you'll ever see one in the game. Uh, but like there are certain fun things that you can find, like there's a ch chest that you can get later on called the chest of the mundane, which allows you to put whatever object you want into it. Uh, and it looks like uh, spoons, plates when it's inserted. But like with vacuuming, I don't feel like I'm ever penalized aside from weight capacity for picking up every goblin club or rotten fruit. Uh, but I feel like you always have the opportunity to stay ahead in riches in this game. So feel free to pick up whatever you want buy whatever you want, you know, there's a lot of ease with play how you want. Stories are kind of hard to talk about. Uh, I'm just going to say each kind of character has their own specific tale that I feel like are ingrained in my mind from what I feel is like a resource pool that, uh, you know, Dungeon Masters had in previous games when I played in like 3.5 and Pathfinder sessions. Yeah, I, I've never had the discipline to go through a whole campaign or, you know, DM myself. But sometimes I feel like I dream of, like, dabbling in it. Fair point, though, that it's usually players who make DMs quit, though, so I, I think I'll bow out of that. Okay, so what can I say without spoiling too much? Uh, mind players are cool. I almost want to do an entire run where uh, I see what what is the easiest path to become a mind flayer, you know, something fun, something interesting, something new, something better than just like the good guy's triumph. So, so realistically, for this playthrough, I'm in for another 60 plus hours of pain plus a second playthrough. There's not really too much that's disappointing. Character creation is, is I think, as deep as it needs to be. There's no like Korean butt size slider option on my character creator. So the game is clearly a 4 out of 10. Uh, you know, despite there being five different options for size of dongs. It's probably for that reason alone, Baldur's Gate 3 surpassed Breath of the Wild on Metacritic. Uh, interfaces are fine. Uh, they said the Xbox version wasn't coming out anytime soon because of the Xbox Series S, so don't think of it like a controller constraint, uh, because people are really enjoying their playthrough on PS5. Uh, there's cross saves if you want to bounce between the two if you feel like buying the game twice. I won't judge, but I'll say this, controller play definitely wasn't bad, uh, but I definitely feel once again that this is an incredibly keyboard and mouse oriented game. Multiplayer, you know, group play is functional, but still feels kind of like half complete, maybe not broken, but uh, you kind of have to stay on the ball when you are communicating with an NPC just so that everyone is in and can be there uh, early to see what's going on in the conversation. Uh, there, there was a bug that they hot fixed where people were not being instantly pulled into group shared cutscenes. 
uh, I will probably say, unless you want to keep like the RP real, turn off uh, private cutscenes. Uh, I mean, everyone should share in everyone's failed roles. Let's. I think it just creates a much more fun kind of environment. I wish there was a little bit more than just like the slight indication that party members are observing uh, an interaction besides a little ear on their portrait. In terms of like uh, interaction, they got rid of the stupid little dice roll that determines, you know, whose dialogue option is going to go with. You can make suggestions, but ultimately it's kind of like true party leading. It's you have to act like adults and ultimately put in your opinions, but let the lead person decide. In D&D, sometimes that both solidifies and or destroys friendships, but I don't know. Like, really, if that's the only social interaction you have with people that involves conflict resolution, I think you need to venture outside for some forced social interaction a bit more often. Seeing Baldur's Gate's opening stats, uh, they release kind of just like a, a how the first weekend went, uh, maybe even the first week kind of thrown in there for some things. It's pretty cool to see like a nice spread across the board. It entered into the top 10 most uh, conse uh, consecutive players playing at the same time. I think it was somewhere in like the 800,000s, but I mean like, you know, it's it's gangbusters. It's interesting to see a lot of things. Uh, you know, least popular class was Cleric because nobody wants to be a healing slave. Pet the Dog uh, was at an all-time high, so make sure you buy stonks. Uh, and a reminder that a nice proportion of people are continuing the trend of bringing pure chaos and destruction, but I won't go much more into that. We are doing our multiplayer playthrough, just kind of like being the world's biggest dicks, uh, and while I don't think you'll be able to enjoy the story as much that way, uh, and you definitely get to see a lot of ultra sass from all the uh, the main characters being displeased with you, it, it's still fun. It's still a way of playing it, and it's satisfying. It's going to be in everyone's top five games of the year, uh, except, I don't know, the, the haters who can't stand isometric RPGs and need to shoot something. But like, I mean, I love the engine. Uh, I love the graphic art artists. I love kind of everything. I hope they sell out by doing, like, continuing on with the success and doing Neverwinter Nights or Icewind Dale. Or who knows, you know, even branch out and maybe try to buy the license to the Dark Sun series. I know a lot of people are not going to get that reference, but I don't know. Google it. It's, it's old school D&D you know, back in the uh, Amiga days. Haha, <laughs> nerd. Either way, I fully support Larian, uh, and I will support them until they, who knows, sell out, but not after supporting them for the second or third time. So moving on, uh, the other game that this episode was supposed to be about, uh, before I got sick and couldn't make it through two sentences without coughing up a lung, is Dave the Diver. To me, it's like trying to talk about the winner of the Miss Universe Award and Miss Winner of the US Award. Because obviously I'm a giant fan of Mint Rocket's kind of gem of a game. And while I think there's still like little bits that you can criticize Dave the Diver on, overall the game was a smash. Uh, I beat it in 30 hours and then kind of like dabbled a little bit in the after game. But playing Dave the Diver just kind of brought me a lot of joy. It makes me want to review games properly just so that I can categorize Dave the Diver as a game that really stood out on its own, and say that it was one of the few games that I've played recently where I played it start to what I would call finish, with no dabbling in other games. Over the last three years, that list has basically been limited to Hogwarts Legacy, Disco Elysium, and Return to Monkey Island. 
Dave the Diver is like a friend you know has their flaws, but has a fun attitude, it's humble about itself, and quite honestly is sorely missed once you have gone your separate ways. For those of you who haven't seen a view, who haven't seen like a review or a video in this past month, you know, still without Dave in your life, Dave the Diver is a 2D underwater fishing game meets storm management. By day, you are dying to sharks, getting poisoned and running out of air, and by night, you are slowly working towards impressing randoms and nobodies on the premise that it's good for business, while the game kind of puts the whole spotlight on Bansho's mysterious pass, and yet nobody ever talks about Dave, or waits for Dave to get back before celebrating and having drinks, or doing anything for Dave without having Dave do something for them first. <sighs> Those jerks. I can't even remember if Dave was able to get any of the sushi he was promised. Uh, I'm confident every time Dave just earns like a watered-down beer for risking his life and then putting all of his time and effort into managing every dollar that goes into this restaurant while on vacation. And all so that Banjo can, I don't know, deep fry a shoe with garnish and call it culinary art. Anyways, the early game starts out pretty methodical. Get some good hauls while diving, capture as many fish as possible, fill out your encyclopedia, you know, get your sharks, your seahorses, whatever. Get whatever you can as humanly possible. Then, you know, go down and find mayo in casserole pots at 200 meters under the sea. And then finally, you know, get down deep enough that you are able to save a mythical race of sea people because apparently no one is intimidated by a big jolly guy in a wetsuit. You get through all that, and then what you don't expect uh, is like the after part of it. You know, the, the ability to self-sustain your restaurants with farmed plants, uh, trapped sharks, marlin, you know, put them all into fisheries for some good old fish inbreeding. And then you can go and put out ads to get some well-rounded, incredible potential, if trained properly, obviously, uh, nobodies and... Ugh, Nobody Twitch streamers like, oh, I don't know, Co Carnage who managed to sneak in here. But if you play your cards right uh, and neglect Co Carnage, you can just send them out for the day to go find two to three pieces of salt. Hiring staff was kind of like the best way to ensure that you're getting a reliable amount of money, aside from making sure that your menu was always up to date. I mean, as you kind of progressed and you had like different parts of the story going through, it was always kind of fun as kind of like a mental break uh, to have an assortment of minigames. I mean, they were neat. They did kind of detract from the main game. And by the end of it, I mean, for me, I was mostly just like skipping all the minigames, just, you know, picking through the menu, doing my key dives for specific fish to capture. If I can talk about kind of like disappointing depth in the game, uh, I basically just played with one gun. And I don't think it's necessarily my fault, uh, but it's also kind of like Mint Rocket's fault for just making one gun so good that I never had to try anything else. Because originally, at the beginning, I was trying to have a balanced arsenal. Try to get, like, you know, a fire sniper rifle to make sure I was doing maximum damage. Uh, if you want to just have infinite frustration, you put poison on anything. I guess that is kind of standard if you want to tick something for 8 damage at a time instead of shoot it for 70 if you want things to go to sleep really, really quickly, uh, you put a tranquilizer ammo in a shotgun. Because, I mean, that's what the doctor ordered. And lastly, and what I discovered very quickly, 
If you want the entire ocean to cower in fear the moment Dave's robust shadow kind of shows up in the ocean, just get the gravity launcher. And then, yeah, I mean, if you really want the extra bonus, you know, maybe dabble with the black hole launcher to see if the bonus damage and adding a little bit of weak poison hap makes you happy. But seriously, I unlocked the gravity launcher and I kept it in hand the entire game, switching out only by accident a couple times after crafting another weapon or upgrading a weapon or thinking that I should pick up a sniper rifle for one of the boss fights that probably wasn't necessary. That gravity launcher was basically your bastion of safety. You could trap sharks, you could pull you could pull sharks to like the ground that are normally good and are fast at catching up with you and you can just like trap them against the floor and pummel them endlessly. But yeah, Gravity Launcher basically just carried, carried me through the entire game uh, and I beat the final boss with it. But it's like, as you get towards the end of the game, all you really do is like fill up a fully upgraded trunk, you know, with realistically it comes down to like four bigger catches. You know, you fill it up with a handful of resources you can find at random, plus accidental catches because, I don't know, I'm using a giant black hole creating explosion. Uh, and then mostly just like watching farms grow you know, I bought every expansion, I bought every chicken possible. After the first couple weeks, it was basically just my cycle to, to make money. Uh, I didn't even bother upgrading, like, any of the non-essential stuff. It was basically just what I put in to become self-sufficient. You know, right off the start, as soon as I had staff, it was basically just machine gunning the hiring button as soon as I saw that they could be hired. Because before I even realized that you get a branch location, where your, you know, little island misfits run a place by themselves. It just made the acquisition of materials uh, and just making money so much easier. It did kind of create an interesting challenge in the game where you make sure that you have enough resources to run two locations, you know, satisfy event nights, for example, for some of the harder materials to come across. Uh, and near the end, there were times uh, where my branch, for some reason, was making more money, you know, I guess thanks to having better leveled staff, uh, staff with... I think I picked out all, like, the superstar staff that uh, constantly gets tipped. But, I mean, like, once my locations were dressed to the nines and it didn't look like a thrift store that served sushi, money was rolling in, and then by the end there was nothing left to do. And that's what kind of kills me. I can see that there's room to grow in this game. You know, spots for additional content, opportunities for optimization, and so on. But, like, once you get through that story, and realistically with just, like, a tiny bit of farming, you have nothing left to throw your money at besides you know training training every single piece of staff to level 20 to get like the optimal rating you can unlock the the diamond whatever star rating uh with single ingredient dishes like narwhal and whatever that big eyed shark is like the dober shark or something uh within what i felt like five days or basically two casual trips down once you get into the final area and all it really takes is being able to submarine net them, just for the way that it sends uh, whatever pieces or uh, spawn or eggs into your fishery. It left me wanting more than just like what it provided you with, you know, in three days time, it's going to be mayo fest, so don't forget how to make mayo with uh, wheat sushi. It just kind of gets you to the point where it's like, I love that I got to the top of this mountain to see everything that I conquered. I just kind of sigh at the end that there was no bigger mountain to climb, no new game plus, no uh, surprise expansion. Customers can get salmonella and tapeworms now, or, you know, appease the simps and whatever 
better do your Hololive uh, Hatsumi Miku, whatever the hell it's called, Parapara Dance. Oh god, I'm old. I, that, that was way too old of a reference. But who knows, like, with all the stuff that went through this game, maybe, you know, Mint Rocket stopped this before they went too deep and made sure that the game was interesting. All that I can say is I'm waiting for DLC. I can wait for so much more in this game. I don't think it's going to be the number one on anybody's list, but it's definitely going to be my indie game of the year contender right here. Uh, so I do want to talk about... So I do want to make one of these points in this podcast uh, about the ROG Ally before I talk about indie games, uh, because surprisingly enough, I decided that I wasn't going to get the ROG Ally. Uh, I was going to get the GPD Win 4, I guess it's called the Pro, uh, because I wanted 32 gigabytes of RAM and the ability to just put in a normal SSD uh, into a device. You know, I somehow decided that the smaller form factor uh, built-in slide-up keyboard and kind of a familiar PSP format and the promise of, you know, more customization with a 7840U handheld was for me. Uh, and then it just so happened that I happened upon an ally. Uh, and now I have to make a, a tough decision down the road. In the two weeks that I've had it, which I guess is now three since I've been sick, uh, I understand 100% why anyone would tolerate a, a buggy, inconsistent, crappy Windows 11 and suboptimal controller of a system. It's the VRR panel and kind of like access to that higher FPS that makes the deck so desirable. You know, my initial impressions that w when I had that quick glimpse in Taiwan during one driving game didn't really do justice for how well uh, RPGs, running guns, indies, emulation, basically every other game looks with VRR going down to even into the 40s. It still looks so fluent. Even when you have to step down to 720p, like you can remedy that with uh, RIS if a game doesn't have built-in uh, resolution scaling. It's like these constant advancements reminds me that FSR 1 it's never going to be touched by me on the deck ever again unless, like, you're super desperate. Even in Baldur's Gate 3, like, oof. You you are definitely in dire territory if you have to put that thing on anything besides uh, super quality. But again, ROG Ally, 60 FPS with ease. And that's not even talking about the golden era of games where I consider duly designed PS4 and Xbox One games just being, like, perfect you know this is the ps4 xbox one handheld but honestly just like getting back into it starting up with this device i feel like it's back in the dark era of launch that the deck went through people recommending dozens of alternatives to awful armory crate software half of them not being quite ready or maybe like half baked um and especially for the fact that no one thing is full support like, for example, the first thing that I saw in, like, some video was, uh, make sure you download Ultimate x86 Tuning Utility. This is all, this is even before, you know, like, you get through the laundry list of handheld companion, uh, handheld control panel, uh, what, whatever, G-Helper. Uh, x86 was initially advertised, at least in a video that I saw, as the most feature and complete version. Uh, but it wasn't the easiest utility to manage, uh, and I found it clashed a lot with uh, Armory Crate. At least it was like the most foolproof. Uh, I could revert everything that it had done before I went to go dabble in other utilities. Uh, I feel like Ultimate 86 just needs some extra time to bait to become more handheld friendly. Because I, after that I basically jumped into Handheld Companion, 
uh, which is good. It has the quick access panel. It has the full access window. Uh, sadly, it's not as like flushed out as I would hope it was. Plus, it produces some weird bugs if you don't disable armory crate. Like it has literally 95% of what I want in the software because I don't need a games launcher, but it lacks the customization of some of the other apps. And I found that the uh, CPU control was a bit lacking. Maybe it was just like missing. I, I don't think I saw like a bunch of profiles. You'd have to manually do it each time or assign it per game. But I mean, like there's certain aspects that I loved. You can switch on the fly between uh, emulated Xbox controller and emulated PS4 controller. So remote play on PS4 was simple. You know, I didn't have to worry about messing around with Chiaki. Uh, but I mean, like, every once in a while, I would have problems with double input or completely ignoring controller inputs in games because of what I assume is a conflicting software problem with Armory Crate. And so, I mean, like, I tried to figure out what I could do to work with handheld companion. Uh, and now that I say that, uh, handheld control panel, I think I looked up by mistake thinking it was handheld companion. Uh, but it looks like it's just n not updated, or maybe it's not updated well to work with ROG Ally, so I passed it over. But a lot of people recommended running Handheld Companion and G Helper together, which kind of handles the power profiles. Uh, RGB, and my personal favorite, has a button to stop all ASUS software from running in the background. You make your own fan curves, you designate CPU profiles, and you can, you know, do things that gr greatly benefit your performance and efficiency by, like, disabling CPU boost, you know, or, like, selecting an option that allows it to act aggressively efficient, as an example. Uh, I really think G-Helper and Handheld Companion together is where it's at, uh, but I'm kind of worried because with Armory Crate, I mean, maybe it can just be solved with, uh, what is it, my Asus? But I'm constantly hoping that there are new BIOS updates because I, the just the device feels like it's such in like a, a incomplete state that I have to keep dragging Armory Crate along, and like and for that matter, it's just like I always wish that Armory Crate was better in itself. Like consulting with like these side projects because honestly, aside from people who are maybe like oblivious to the whole situation. There's a lot of people who just don't want Armory Crate. We're not even talking on the Ally in its current state. You know, it's baby steps customizable. Uh, it's so far behind the curve of Chinese handhelds. And Asus definitely isn't winning anyone over with the, hey, this is how I'm going to stop your SD card reader from getting fried. Here's my big brain maneuver. I'm going to force your fan curve to 75% when it hits 60 degrees Celsius. Like, who in the right mind thought that was an adequate solution? Like, and I think like Dave2D had a, like a really good point right now, you know, you can't even rely on previous reviews to talk about like the current situation of uh, the ROG ally. And I think the ROG ally gets more negative news despite, you know, you know, better performance in games. You know, it's definitely going to be the step up from the Steam Deck. And I don't want to sound like a jerk, but once again, people who said AMD APUs are designed to run at 95 degrees Celsius and it's fine, don't worry, you know, make all the toast you want, are not the people who are in this for the long haul, because heat has a serious effect on all computers. It doesn't even, like, touch on the fact that, like, in the current state of affairs, they don't even know if it's just the heat to blame. You know, some people are thinking that it's volatile voltages that are screwing up SD cards and the SD card reader. So for everyone who thought they were getting uh, 
512 gigabyte hard drive device with SD card expansion are kind of really in store to learn how to upgrade their own SSD or who knows, live with a USB drive permanently installed on their device. Now, if it sounds like this is like the most scripted part of the speech, uh, because it is, uh, I got a page into this rant before remembering nobody wants to hear too much excessive complaining. Uh, so I tried to ch like chop this down a little bit. I think 7840U release was premature. Lumping the, whatever this, I'm lumping the Z1E into this because whatever Asus wants to justify for setting it down its own path or whatever legal obscurity for not getting AMD updates. Because like the fact of the matter is I miss kind of the granular control of Van Gogh's processor on the deck. I don't know if this was just like a Linux thing or being locked out of the BIOS or what. Uh, because like I said, on the Steam Deck, I undervolted and capped my CPU uh, to the point where I was making sure that I wasn't making more toast than FPS. Uh, that wattage was always better sent to the APU and the ally is no different. I almost wonder if it's because of like the inherent flaw of the way the hardware is, like the APU, because you can see the HS variant and like these processors, you know, maybe the U device is just like the lesser binned chip. You see them, you see the HS variant running at like what, 60 watts, 80 watts? and then seeing them perform well, well, how hard do you think the power struggle is going to be on a device like that when you start only throwing 10 watts at it, let alone 15 watts? People instantly realize that, yes, you need to turn off CPU boost games for games that don't need the CPU. Stop that CPU from pr prioritizing itself, doing its inefficient thing of, you know, spinning its wheels the way that it always does, and get that GPU to 100% utilization. It was really a weird situation because people were constantly pushing alternatives, you know, to reach this kind of granular control, uh, disabling all the armory crate nonsense so that it has no control over the power profiles, and that way you can set maximum process power to percentages that would put you in the high, you know, 2 gigahertz, even 3 gigahertz ranges. You know, just straight up lock that GPU to a specific clock speed. You know, hell, even I tried a couple times doing like real smooth brain tactics by going into MS config and turning off two cores and then eventually trying to turn off four cores. And it's funny that I saw a video on this after, which I 100% agree with. When you drop half the threads on this processor, it is dumbfounding when you realize that it actually improves the performance uh, of sub 15 watts. It's like, if you're looking for an easy way to save like, like under five watts of total system power, in indie games, like, this is literally the way to go. But the other side of this is seeing how much more cores show you just how well they work in efficient ranges. And, like, I think we really need to explore what that efficient range is for things like uh, emulation or open-world gaming, just to make sure that we're always hitting that 60 FPS that we need. And that's why there's always going to be a desire for software like AutoTDP. You know, it stops the processor from spinning its wheels too hard, uh, the superior version that I've been told is uh, Cypher's Bat. You know, it, uh, I've joined the GPD Discord only because I'm kind of like stuck in hype. Uh, but like that Bat that he provides is basically a customer service because he doesn't want to be bothered. He just wants to kind of share in his customized successes with the rest of the community. I feel like it's hidden knowledge for those who don't care to seek it out. Uh, and it's probably more complicated than most average users want to get with it. 
handheld companion has auto TDP as well, but everyone has been describing it kind of like different ways to approach auto TDP. And honestly, I'm not the expert in the matter to tell you which one's better. All I can say is this, on my on my gaming laptop, on my uh, on my ROG Strix uh, G15 laptop, I uninstalled Armory Crate immediately uh, and then ran the install tool to reverse its hampering, you know, to, to get all that performance back on like a, you know, 115 watt 2060. And it's funny enough that the, the tool that you get after installing Armory Crate to reverse all the crap that Armory Crate does to your laptop is actually provided by Asus themselves. That's kind of like admitting that, you know, Armory Crate can be the fault for hampering performance. And so, like, I had to repeat the same steps on my Ally because it just shows what a wasted opportunity it is for Asus, as a hardware provider, uh, to phone it in with the way that Armory Crate is in its, in its current state. So I hope you enjoyed the truncated rant because it's being concluded with this statement. Um, I hit the start a return button on my ROG Ally return. Uh, so I basically have until the end of the month to make my decision whether I wipe my hands clean of this device uh, and just purely enjoy my GPD win in September, or who knows, uh, return it now and buy an ROG Ally with the next hardware revision that doesn't have piss poor planning on its hardware configuration, you know, and maybe it'll be in a more mature state. I don't know. The Ally has sold over 500,000 units globally, but judging from the amount of open box units that kind of show up on US Best Buy and kind of the amount of discontent people have on Reddit, I wonder what the return rate actually is. Because like, I think it's hard to see ROG Ally for like the good that it does, when all that is broadcast is, is really the, the defects, you know. But now that I've kind of exhausted everyone's patience for listening about me bitching complain about my expensive hobby nonsense, uh, I didn't buy any indie games this month because I'm trying to be the responsible adult and finish games on my plate. Uh, but if I did have a point of weakness for my endless hoarding of games and games that I play for 20 minutes and then just end up staying installed for a while, I think there's only one game that kind of comes to my mind uh, Dwarf Fermantic is a game that I've been constantly holding out for uh, for Humble Bundle fodder, and I'm pretty sure if it doesn't show up by Christmas, I'm just going to end up buying it. It is a casual world builder done one tile at a time, uh, kind of matching topography so you can keep your game, or I guess world, going uh, by satisfying quest criteria and so on. It's $10 sale fodder, if that matters to you, uh, because for me, that's kind of like an easy comparison point. Uh, I do keep a certain hesitation for these kind of games because usually I complete them once and then I never touch them again. It kind of like there's this one game called For the King, for example. You know, it had a little bit of roguelike board game building, exploring in it, but I, I beat it once and then never touched it again. But I mean like 10 bucks. Would I go see the Barbie movie in theaters with any kind of dignity intact or leave without spending at least $30 total with popcorn and candy to alleviate the guilt? Not a chance. Whatever, consider spending $10 on D4's joke of a battle pass? <laughs> the biggest nope right there. So really I have to decide, you know, do I want to be a lazy bum and watch a tile stack draw down while grouping pieces of landscape together in kind of a simple yet satisfying format, kind of reminiscent of Carcassonne? You know, absolutely. I see a lot of people only having like 6-10 to 10 hours into this game which kind of is what leads me to this conclusion. It makes me think that I'd get through maybe one to two replays uh, before putting it down, but I always have kind of like a soft spot for overwhelmingly positive games on Steam. 
because it's always all these games that come out besides like the meme games uh, that tend to be the best value for your time. Uh, but check it out. Give Dwarf Romantic a shot uh, if you're tired of whatever Baldur's Gate, Tears of the Kingdom, Dave the Diver. If you don't really see yourself as a, any of those game fans, uh, I won't judge you. I'll just sit here and grumble about kids not growing up with, you know, slow-paced slow paced methodical RPGs. Slow-paced methodical games. Uh, lastly, as some games I will continue to hype for this month because I am, in fact, hyped for them to come out. Uh, sea of Stars comes out mid-month on Xbox Game Pass if you're down with old-school JRPGs. I know most of the JRPG enjoyers are waiting on this one in anticipation of playing it fully through, uh, and we're kind of lucky that for most people, there's going to be caught up with a lot of the summer games for a lot of the summer game release. Uh, but I'd say honestly, if you're not fans of three games, like I think it's pretty tame, and you can fit a lot of new games in. Uh, the other game, of course, like I said, is Hammerwatch 2. Uh, Change the Hammerwatch formula a little bit to be more like. Uh, Zelda or but with proper crafting and vendors and quests but I, I mean like I like crack shell games so give them some support or at least at the very least you know wishlist the game and show them that you care uh, lastly if you haven't already done so uh, you probably have until the end of the month to look into converting Xbox gold keys into Xbox ultimate for game pass I wouldn't imagine that they're probably gonna close this loophole in September so consider helping your future frugal self out by subscribing to Xbox Game Pass. Like, like rants aside, when I did this three years ago, I think I converted at like $4 per month to get Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. Now the conversion isn't as great because some of the deals and the bonus months don't always go through. But even at, if you're getting up to like $5 a month, you know, there are other things like Microsoft Rewards that let you convert Microsoft points into months on your Game Pass. But the long story short is I've already gone through three years and right now I'm subscribed until May of 2026. So like I have all my bases covered. Uh, I have so much confidence put into this that, you know, I will get to play games that I know I'll never own, but the cost to experience uh, is unmatched. You know, it's worth the price. I would say, you know, just factoring in the annual cost of what I paid for these passes for something like uh, a triple-a game like starfield and i mean like it probably opens the door for the acquisition of activision blizzard but i mean you know i don't really know if that would actually play into it because activision basically has call of duty uh to me that might as well be a free-to-play game for the fact that it i think the most recent title is like 500 gigabytes so you might as well have to buy it just a, a bigger ssd to play on to, to play it i'm trying to think of other like noteworthy titles that they push and it's like new crash uh yeah and then there's blizzard like ugh, you know the the company that walks around with a cardboard cutout of what it used to look like on its face pretending to be the things that people used to enjoy about blizzard games and i understand it's hard not to be a bit negative because it's not like their games are complete trash like ea uh it just seems to have lost that long-lasting appeal aspect of what Blizzard games used to represent. And the, what this 100% corporate greed, you know, D4 interest dropped for me way earlier than I would have liked. Season 1 sucked, and that temporary flavor of quarter boosts of crap that come out in the Battle Pass, 
doesn't fix the fact that I've been running the same dungeons on nightmare mode at a reduced EXP rate, dying more, having classes that don't feel fun, you know. I don't I have no desire to finish my battle pass, and I think that's what sucks. I know I'm gonna miss out on whatever horse armor, but that doesn't add value to the playthrough. But at any rate, you know, make sure you top up. Well, I hope you're happy that I saved all the negative to the end of the podcast. It was definitely a lot more bitching and complaining than I think I was going to do. But again, thanks for sticking through another episode of Mope and Complain. Uh, Dave the Diver seriously put a spring back in my step this month. And then just to top it off, being able to play Baldur's Gate 3 is just like heaven. I feel like I've neglected Tears of the Kingdom so much, but like, it's such a fun game. But it's like, it's a familiar game. I know it's going to be my fallback to casually enjoy. Uh, and just as a fun side note, at the time of recording, uh, fun fact, Game in Hand has hit 500 downloads, which for a podcast that only has six episodes and <laughs> doesn't get advertised anywhere, to me that's kind of fantastic. Uh, so I hope for those of you who have tuned in and are enjoying the podcast, uh, thank you so much. I hope you continue to enjoy yourself, and I hope this summer is fun enough that you're taking it easy, you know, playing some fun games. At any rate, thanks for listening. My name is Dan. You're listening to Game in Hand. Bye for now.